Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today's extra episode is with Annie Zaidi. She's a writer based in Mumbai, and she has just won the Nine Dots Prize with a remarkable book about home, belonging, and identity in India. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me talk. Just before I talk to Annie, I want to say a little bit about the Nine Dots Prize. I should declare an interest. I am one of the judges. It's a prize that asks a question, and this year the question was, is there still no place like home? To enter, people have to write a 3,000-word essay, and the winning entry gets to turn that essay into a book. All of the essays are anonymous, so we don't know when we're judging it, who it is who's going to win. And it turned out that the winner this year for her essay about her life in India is the writer Annie Zaidi, based in Mumbai. I caught up with Annie last week. We asked her to turn off her fan while we recorded this. It's really hot there. So she opened the window. I'm sure you'll understand that there's a little bit of interference, but most of it is the noise of Mumbai outside, the birds and the tuk-tuks and the street life. Annie, maybe we should start by you telling people where you are, what situation you're in. Literally, where are you? Where are you sitting? I am sitting in my mother's apartment in uh, Mumbai, or rather on the outskirts of Mumbai. It's a little outside Mumbai, this place. We are under quite a strict lockdown these days because of the pandemic. I'm not going out much at all, except maybe just to the gates of the building, literally just there to get supplies and then back. And I think my muscles are just dying. Because we are not allowed to go out for exercise and things like that. Also, I mean, the curve hasn't flattened with the numbers increasing. So we are being encouraged not to go out at all unless it's absolutely essential. And we should tell listeners we asked you to turn off the fan so there wouldn't be that background noise. It's hot, yeah? It is very hot, yes. It's uh, (laughs) close to 38 degrees C. Wow. So the Mm. theme of your book is about different ways of thinking about home. And we'll we'll come back to the current conditions in India under lockdown. But you say it's your mother's apartment. Would you have described it as home? Well, my mother's home certainly is, is it feels more like home than a lot of other places, I would say, more than my own owned apartment, so to say. Uh, because that's just an apartment, right? Uh, it's not inhabited, it has no history, it uh, I could take it or leave it or sell it and, and it wouldn't really hurt me in any way. This apartment is where I've spent a lot of time, at least uh, maybe 14 years of the last 20. And my mother's here and 
uh, she is obviously the closest kin I have, but also my entire history, my my sense of my culture, my sense of uh, socio-cultural identity is derived more from my mother's side than anywhere else. So for all of these different reasons, this memory here, I'm very familiar with this particular apartment also, uh, this street, this area, the neighborhood. So for all those reasons, at this particular point of time, I would say this does feel more like home than anywhere else. Okay, so let's come back to that at the end, because what's so remarkable about your book is you do describe so many different ways in which people can feel both at home and not at home. And you didn't grow up in Mumbai and your family aren't from there. We'll talk a bit about your family background, but maybe we could start with where you grew up, because the title of the book, The Cactus, The Cement, that comes from your childhood. Where, where did you grow up? Where in India? What was it like? I grew up in um, a very little place called J.K. Puram, which is an industrial township. It's I, I don't know for people who haven't been in industrial townships if they understand what it means and particularly what it means in India. These are places which are usually what you'd say middle of nowhere. And of course, it's not nowhere, but it's often in remote areas because they need space and they need access to natural resources, such as um, in our case, in the case of Jikipuram, they needed access to limestone because it's a cement factory. And my mother was working at a school that the township had set up. The school was primarily for employees. And when I was growing up, in fact, nobody else could get admission there if they weren't an employee of the school. It's a village, but uh, we're not connected to the village. We don't go out into what used to be the village before it became a township. And uh, it is very industrial, but being in the school and my mother being employed in the school rather than the factory, as well as you know, the children of the factory workers don't have an actual connect with the factory either. So it was a strange kind of upbringing. And uh, we didn't know anybody there before we went there. And uh, except when I went back last year, I hadn't been there again uh, for many, many years. In between, I dipped in very briefly. Uh, So it was strange. And I felt no real sense of me being from there even though I spent 11 years there all of my childhood I grew up there completely between the ages of 6 and 16 Um, so that's the kind of place it was and it was known as the colony you you used it was called a colony did you feel like colonizers (laughs) well I didn't for sure because (laughs) not age uh, six (laughs) I mean in what sense do you think it was a kind of colony? I, I do make that link in, in the book. And I think I when I started to think about the word colony, why do we call it a colony? Um, this is not just true, though, of the township. In across urban India, you will find, in North India particularly, where people will define a, even a residential area as a quote-unquote colony. And I kept thinking about that, that why do they call it a colony and, and, and how, in what ways does that resonate with the older meaning of it, I mean, in the colonization meaning of it, in the way that India used to be a colony. And I feel like 
it, the essence of a colony really is that it is a, a place that is established or or at least the colonizer feels that they have established some some rights or something new there that wasn't there before and yet something was there before and it was something over which the colonizer had no power that that is the only distinction between a non-colony and a colony so um in our context in the context of the cement factory there was a village there before and uh, the people of the village later came to work for the factory as well and they continue to get some royalties for you know the extraction of natural resources etc but mainly the place that used to exist before the culture there the people there of them there was no trace at all as residents and as rightful residents by the time that i went there my earliest memory as i say is that of cactus i had never seen cactus until i showed up there and it was a very dry kind of dusty sort of place and the fact that it was a cement factory made it more dusty and um i remember having this this kind of the sense that this place was mysterious beyond the bounds of the colony there were hills on one side and there's the factory on the other side and we know that there is something out there beyond the hills and we know that there are people outside the gates of the township but the people even the original residents of the land the the tribes people who lived the different tribes who lived in the area before the colony was set up were not actually allowed access to the colony so it's very gated you need permission to come you need permission even to leave in a sense because you know there's no public transport you can't hail a bus and get on it and leave so um in all those different ways you know the sense of control the sense of absolute kind of power and control that the owners of uh, i'm i'm saying owners in a in a quote and quote fashion that because it's never really full ownership in that sense uh the land itself is public property but for all effective purposes the management and the the people who own the factory do control that particular piece of land and in every way its resources just the physical access to it so in that sense i i do in retrospect think of it as a as a colony i mean another word for it is it's a kind of outpost so you grew up somewhere where it was for you isolated it wasn't easy to access it wasn't easy to to leave and you were disconnected from the people who had lived there before but it's still a kind of home it's where you have your childhood but it's not where your family would say they were from i mean it was clear this was a temporary arrangement so when you talk to your parents when you talk to members of your family about where the family was from what answer would you get to that that very different sense of home for us it's a little more complicated my generation i think and i i think i can speak for my cousins as well here a lot of us feel dislocated because my mother's generation moved in different directions they didn't necessarily grow up themselves in just one place my grandfather was a bureaucrat so you know they moved around a lot but i think for my grandfather's generation it was very clear that they were from their village even though he himself moved he had that absolute clarity and he passed on that clarity to my mother as well at least in an emotional sense he passed it on to her 
he told her that don't forget where you come from and where you come from meant his village where he didn't live and where she didn't live where i think she's visited it maybe maybe two or three times the entire time as long as he was alive she never really had any incentive to go there it was only after he died that i think maybe she was also looking for a sense of home that was not physical not just an apartment maybe you know looking for a root sort of way she started to go back to the family house the ancestral property and because she went she dragged me along and then i started to go and then i started to kind of understand what my grandfather meant by don't forget where you come from so i do now have a sense that i am also from there but it's very difficult for me to say that with the same authority and and clarity that my grandfather it was very clear to him that that's where he was from and where was this where is this village this is in eastern uttar pradesh in a district which is now called mau but it was earlier part of a larger district called azamgarh which was later carved up into smaller kind of administrative purposes azamgarh is a sort of fiefdom i suppose you could say it had its own raja or king uh who kind of owed allegiance to the next bigger king who owed allegiance to the mogal crown etc at least in theory but in in for all practical purposes it was its own little kind of corner and my grandfather's family were landowners I mean, that was their principal identity uh, there was amidar so which literally means landowners or people who've been given land i wouldn't describe them as working farmers because very few of them actually went to work the land themselves but they owned the land and you know that that's how they lived they lived off the land that was our village what we call our village now um is a kasba called uh, mohamdabad mohamdabad gona it's way out <laughs> it's a uh, very few people have heard of it uh, it's very close to what i think of as a village but it isn't quite a village either it's not like i go home you know cutting through fields and it, there's none of that it's sort of something between a small town and a village and at the level of your parents generation so your family background is also mixed it's it's mixed in terms of identity and religion tell us a bit about that that broader sense of identity where you come from well my mother is muslim and from uttar pradesh and the family has very deep roots in uttar pradesh um we go back at least 14 generations uh, my grandfather was the first one who left the village so to speak and didn't finally go back there and isn't buried there uh, so they obviously had a very very deliberate and very um proud sense of you know this is who we are and this is where we belong and we don't necessarily want to go anywhere else um my father he was punjabi hindu from what is now pakistan but at that time it was undivided india so when the partition happened you know the typical partition narrative is that you know pakistan was created for the muslims and and that you know hindus belong to india that whole rhetoric about india for hindus and pakistan for muslims and now bangladesh so all of that kind of religion based uh, division of 
the nation in my case was kind of weird because um, my father was a hindu who came from the muslim side of the border so to speak and i shouldn't call it the muslim side because when pakistan was created it did set out to also be a land for all religions it didn't set out to become a land only of muslims but it did perhaps try to set out to be a land where it thought it would safeguard the rights of muslims and at that time the people who created it didn't feel confident that, that could happen in india which was primarily hindu or at least majority hindu as we've seen the rhetoric of pakistan hasn't quite died down the fact that the partition happened and that it was religion based it has created this uh, this narrative that muslims belong in pakistan has been kept alive although there are more muslims in india than most places in the world uh, there are other islamic countries but numerically we have more muslims here we are somewhere between 13 and 14% of the population indian muslims and i self identify as muslim with my mother's side of the family partly because my mother and father split up when i was still quite little and my father's side of the family there wasn't much family left Uh, his parents had already died before my mother and father even got married so there was just him and so in in one sense i think because of the circumstances of my early childhood and the way my, my mother's life turned out i ended up identifying much more strongly side of the family and also there was no pressure i chose to self identify as muslim my brother is slightly different in the sense that you know he he also carries the same surname but he is perhaps not as deeply invested in the culture as i am and um i feel that this choice that i made was um a conscious choice in many ways partly just through thinking through my identity and partly also because i do feel quite strongly that my connect to india rests through my indian muslim side of the family i mean my father's side of the family in just physical territorial in in the way that you're connected with the actual physical landscape was disrupted partition disrupted that for a lot of people just suddenly you had these millions of people who just packed up a few belongings and left and moved to places where they don't have any history and perhaps don't even know the local language uh, my mother's side of the family in fact they never left the province like most of my relatives are still there in the same province they speak the same language that their ancestors had spoken for hundreds of years and i i feel quite connected to that and i see no reason why that shouldn't be my primary identity rather than you know just to take on the identity of my father's side of the family um uh, means actually paradoxically adopting a more pakistani or punjabi identity which i do not identify with i can't see that landscape i don't speak that language so um yes for all those different reasons it has been very complicated for me but the paradox is of course that because of the kind of narrative of muslims not belonging and it's kind of always thrown at you you know that that 
oh you're pakistani or oh you belong in pakistan so that is for me particularly very paradoxical because my father actually did come from pakistan talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the london review of books quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together jd power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store and now save 50 percent on the sleep number limited edition smart bed for a limited time for jd power 2023 award information visit jdpower.com awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com in your story so you, you could feel an outsider in two ways as a muslim in india but also because for you identity and you use this word just now as a kind of choice mm. and so much of the political narrative around identity is that it's not a choice you know people are born with identities and that they, they can't shake them off and that whatever the original intention of partition that these two nations would be accommodating nations the political narrative has gone the other way particularly recently, that each country, the identity is meant to be fixed. So do you feel an outsider in that way too, as as someone who has chosen an identity rather than having it imposed? I don't feel like an outsider. However, I do feel like an outlier. Uh, When people ask me, many people ask me, this is one of the first questions I get, even from people who you know, don't really want to probe necessarily. People often ask me about my name, that how do you get that name? Like, what does that name mean? And I get this only in India. I do not get this when I am, say, in the UK. And one of the reasons is that your name in India immediately gives away your identity. So many people assume that I'm Catholic. Annie is a name associated most often with Catholic Christians in India. And many people assume that I am mixed Catholic, Christian and Muslim and that my father must be Muslim because my surname betrays a sort of Muslim identity. And of course, you take your father's surname. So all these different kind of assumptions about who you might be based on your name, people have already started slotting you and they can't make you out very easily if you sound mixed. So then they must know what's the story behind your name. And sometimes I just kind of tell people that I'm mixed and I leave it at that. And when people begin to question me in more pointed ways, then sometimes I tell them and they're always taken aback by the fact that I, one, took my mother's identity and two, that I should have chosen it. I I often make a point to tell them that, that this is a choice I have made. It was not... My mother has never attempted to cut me off from my father's side in any way and has always, in fact, taught me the traditions and rituals to the extent that she herself could uh, of his side, even when he wasn't there. For instance, she made it a point that we celebrate the main festivals that my father also would have liked us to celebrate, Diwali and things like that. But I made that choice partly because... 
I think initially it was more uh, when I was a child, it was perhaps a little bit of a loyalty thing. But as I grew up and I became interested in the question of identity and culture, I think that if I had to choose, I would choose this because this is where I feel the most affinity for my mother's side and for my grandfather, my maternal grandfather's culture and everything that he represented, I think, also. I think for me, my grandfather, my grandmother, my mother's side of the family represents many different things. And it's not just religion. It is, I mean, religion is one thing of it, but also culture, practices, traditions, the way they link themselves to the land, the loyalty that they felt to the land. I feel that in making my choice, I have, I have also made all these other choices. Uh, of choosing that kind of identity and not just a religious identity. I think most people can choose, actually. I think most people like not to think very hard about identity. It's easy, right? People tell you you're Hindu or you're Muslim or you're Christian or you're Catholic. And it's just easy to wear that identity and keep inhabiting it without being forced into a choice or actually without necessarily even examining the meaning of that identity. What does it mean to be this? Um, but I think that it makes sense to wear your identity consciously so that at least when you say that you are something or that you feel like something or you don't feel like something, you know what that means. You have a great chapter in the book about language that is about the different languages that are spoken in India. It's a multi-language society, but language is very closely connected with identity. I mean, it is in many countries. Which language do you feel at home in yourself? So again, in this case too, I'm a little bit mixed up. If you had to ask, if you asked me to choose just one language as my mother tongue, I would say Hindi or Hindustani. Um, however, it is also true that I am equally fluent in and perhaps more articulate in English. My grandfather's side of the family actually would have said Urdu because he's an Urdu writer, was an Urdu writer. And uh, I think he didn't teach his children at home and he sent his children to English medium schools because he wanted them to have a secular education and the best education possible. My mother went to convents mostly through her, most of her school and college. And I think she herself got to the point where English became kind of, you know, a default for her. But she was very particular that her children should not grow up not knowing their language. And therefore, she took a conscious decision along with my father that when her children were little, both me and my brother, that they would try and speak Hindi around us so that we pick up Hindi first. And English, it was just assumed that if the parents do speak English and if you're sent to English medium schools, you will pick up the language. But Hindi particularly, because Hindi is a gendered language. Um, and lots of kids who grew up speaking uh, primarily 
English or another language which is not gendered, they start to fumble and stumble and they, they kind of mix up the gendered pronouns, which she didn't want. So I think that's how I grew up speaking Hindi first. And then I went to English medium schools, of course, and I picked up English. The thing is that English dominates uh, not only as a colonial language, but as the language of business, as the language of progress, as the language that gets you better jobs, higher paid jobs. And therefore, there is every incentive to get better at English and there is no special incentive at getting better at Hindi. Hindi is just sort of there, you know, it's 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 like this distinction people often make between home and outside. So there's a home language and there's an outside language. And for a lot of people of my generation, Hindi was the home language, which you just somehow knew, but English was the language of currency. And because you read so much more in English and because you assimilate ideas and express ideas in English, you get better and better at it. And Hindi does lose some of that uh, felicity. In my case, I lost Urdu almost completely because I wasn't taught it, even literacy I wasn't taught as a child. And what's happened in India is that there has been an almost complete removal of Urdu from all spaces that are not essentially and primarily Muslim. So for instance, in madrasas, Urdu is taught obviously. And in Urdu medium schools, Urdu is the primary medium of instruction, but those schools are mostly kind of populated by Muslim students. And mostly these are students who come from middle to low income families. So anyone who can afford it, even amongst Muslims tend to send their children to, you know, Hindi or the, the best option is English medium schools. So what happens is that Urdu is not offered even as a second or third language. For instance, in um, Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, Urdu is officially the second state language. But if you go to a Hindi medium school or an English medium school, what will happen is that the primary language will be Hindi and English, both languages will be taught. And for the three or four years when a compulsory third language has to be taught, Sanskrit will be chosen over Urdu, even though the second most widely spoken language will be Urdu. So this has become a pattern. Sanskrit is kind of seen as a language that must be saved because it is a kind of quote unquote mother language for all Indian languages, which is, I mean, linguists will tell you that that is not really accurate. But um, that's how it's positioned and that's how it's sold. And as I write in my book, the number of people who speak Sanskrit is negligible. But there is this official policy decision, and this is consistent. This is not recent. This has been a decision from the start since partition. Uh, Sanskrit has been kind of privileged over every other Indian language, except for Hindi, which is, of course, the most widely spoken. But Hindi is supposed to kind of flow from Sanskrit. Therefore, Sanskrit must also be taught in addition to Hindi, etc., etc. Now, I have nothing against Sanskrit per se. Uh, it is in its own right a classical language, and there is every reason to study it and become fluent in it and to study the literature the way you study Greek or Roman or, you know, any other language. But it is like people studying Greek or Latin in the West. 
most people do not know it and except if your primary purpose and interest was studying classical literature or studying say the religious texts uh, there is no need as such to know sanskrit as in primary or secondary school when you are in the 5th 6th and 7th and 8th grades you don't reach for sanskrit naturally and you are not going to use it in your life in any form of you know everyday average life unless the purpose is to kind of familiarize you with the religious and ritual texts which i think is a little bit you know that's not a secular education then there should be a choice which is more acceptable to wider number of people and which people may perhaps benefit from in secular and practical ways but that's how it has played out and urdu has consistently been seen as a quote and quote other language you know it's the language of the other the language of pakistan therefore it's kind of taken off most syllabuses and therefore i never studied it and in recent times it's become even more contested like universities have started to put urdu on they're still on the program but to designate them foreign languages when india is the birthplace of urdu so it's funny as you were speaking i was thinking that now in the uk we have a prime minister who is often described as a populist yet the other thing people know about him is that he um he loves latin i don't know what the <laughs> connections with sanskrit but it just uh, you know it's one of these ironies and and it is a theme of your book which is that mm. you know, we all do but particularly in india almost everyone has multiple identities exists in a range of languages or is exposed to different languages and yet over time it's become more polarized and politicized so language is politicized language is a symbol of identity and there's a drive for forms of purity or as you say to make certain languages foreign certain languages native you yourself your life experiences to have all of these different identities pressing in on you and then you move to mumbai where you like you say you've lived for more than a decade and mumbai as seen from the outside is the great cosmopolitan indian city um it's the city of business but it's also you know, a city of migration people arriving all the time and yet as you describe it i mean you have amazing descriptions of what life is like in mumbai the bustle the you know just what it's like on the streets but the cosmopolitanism is in retreat is that fair to say well see this is the amazing thing about politics how you feel about a place changes quite significantly and very quickly based on policy decisions uh when i was writing this book i did feel a quite um that not only that cosmopolitanism was in retreat but that the struggle to belong to a city like mumbai involved identity it involved nativism language all of that and that uh, the struggle was real even for somebody like me who is you know i'm not a migrant laborer in that sense uh, so i am not having to every day on the streets uh, negotiate the frictions you know which being a worker and being working class kind of pushes every kind of identity becomes a source of friction and you are most exposed to it so i am in some senses always have been just 
because of the fact that I've worked in the English medium, in English newspapers and magazines and things like that. In some ways, I have been a little bit insulated from that. However, between last year and this year, what has changed is that we have a new coalition government. So some of the people who were most nativist and most uh, critical of migrants 10 years ago or five years ago, uh, now are in coalition with other parties who do not necessarily take a very nativist stand and who are national parties in a sense. And therefore, some of that rhetoric has been toned back. And in fact, even over the last five years, as the demographic and political kind of constituencies have have changed because of the demographic changes and the leadership is very sensitive to that. So initially they resisted, but I think it also came to a point where they came to understand that this resistance is unsustainable, that the city needs the people it needs and it has the people it has, and that at some point you've got to make peace with that. And holding on to your culture, you also have to let others' cultures coexist. At least that's the signal that's coming. Now, that does not necessarily mean that cosmopolitanism has returned or that it ever went away or that it is, you know, that, that anything fundamentally changes in how people, the, the man on the street feels, you know, about, about outsiders and insiders. However, the fact that the leadership and that the kind of political rhetoric has been toned down slightly does change how I feel as well. I do not feel as vulnerable as I would have five years ago. Annie, I wanted just to read you one line from your book, uh, which mm-hmm. really struck me. I used to wonder why it mattered so much to politicians that people don't marry for love. Now I begin to see it. W- what did mm-hmm. you mean by that? Politics is essentially about control over other people and deriving control from other people and how they identify themselves. So group identity and community identity is very important to politicians. If they cannot clearly identify who their constituency is, then they don't know how to frame their politics. If your politics is pegged primarily to religion and caste and if that is how you're going to execute your politics then it becomes very important to you that your caste and your religious identity does not undergo massive changes the problem with love obviously is that when people love they don't necessarily look for love within your religion or love within your caste and sometimes even if you do go looking for it it doesn't happen and sometimes when people take that decision to cross barriers and boundaries and marry for love, they're basically letting the community know that identity is fluid and that it's okay to be both this and that, or sometimes to stop being one thing and become another thing because that's just okay too. This is really problematic for politicians because it tells them, one, that they cannot take the community for granted, and two, It tells them that something is more powerful than power. Something is more powerful than identity, than religion, than caste, than nation even. Because this emotion that can can lead you to defy, that can even lead you to um, perhaps confront violence and even give up your life, 
that something is more powerful than you is obviously anathema to politics. So, so you described it in Mumbai. There's a a feeling it may be temporary that some of the cosmopolitanism is being defended. Some of the nativism isn't as strong as it was a few years ago. In your book, you have headlines, and people in the West will be familiar with these headlines drawn from newspapers of what happens to people when they cross boundaries for love, cross boundaries of caste or, or religion, drawn f- you know, from very recent newspaper stories, and it's terrible. I mean, the consequences can still be terrible. Hmm. Is it as bad as ever in that sense? I mean, is that changing too or not in, in, in India in 2020? No, it's not changing. As I mentioned in my book, for a while I was making a list of people who are killed or um, hounded or otherwise attacked, assaulted for marrying people they have chosen. Sometimes it's different religions, more often it's caste. Sometimes it's even people who are not, where caste is not such a big problem, just the question of having chosen, that becomes a problem. However, I think, I mean, now, of course, because of the pandemic, nobody's running away with anyone. Um, <laughs> which, uh, Except on Zoom. <laughs> which it might offer some solace to to people who are troubled by things like that. But I was reading this book, that was the last book I read, which is called Love Jihad. Um, It covers uh, this case in uh, Uttar Pradesh, which is sort of my home state as well, my grandfather's state, which I mentioned before. The deep evil that fuels things like this, you know, the absolute immorality with which people approach couples who are interfaith. There was this girl who decided to marry and very often how these things play out is that a boy and a girl are in love and they'll go and they'll get married but they'll come back to home you know to their their respective parents homes and very often this is because they don't have a home to go to and they can't tell their parents that they've married. So they continue to live as unmarried single people and then they'll at some point when they have the opportunity, when they feel the time is right, they let their parents know and hope for the best. Very often this ends in tragedy because the parents will beat them or kill them or try to break the couple apart. Very often in India what happens is that the parents of the girl will then file a case of rape against the boy and say that he kidnapped her or something like that or that the girl is underage. And all of these things have been done repeatedly in this book that I mentioned in one case. The family did all of that. What they further did is that accused two or three other people who were completely unrelated, who didn't know the girl at all, had never met her, accused all of them of gang rape, said that this girl had been kidnapped and that these people, these two or three people were all accused. And you destroy so many lives just like that, like the snap of a finger, four lives have been destroyed. Because then, of course, it's a criminal case and then these people have to be picked up and then they spend time in jail. And by the time they're exonerated, five or six or seven or ten years have passed. And it's not easy to just pick up the pieces of your life. Even if you are acquitted two years later, your life has still been destroyed. So I think fundamentally what's fueling it is now, I think, now. Earlier, a lot of it was 
perhaps just family control, you know, Romeo and Juliet style. Families didn't want to surrender control of your marital choices. I think now it is very much a political decision where you decide to cause rifts between communities and use the trope of love, misuse and abuse the word love, where the word love jihad has gained currency. Most recently, in fact, there was this television journalist who, after the coronavirus epidemic played out, this journalist, not only they were trending this thing called Corona Jihad, you know, that accusing Muslims of deliberately spreading the virus. But also this journalist, for which now there is a criminal case against him, but what he did was he, he, he showed a chart on television showing the different kinds of jihad that are being undertaken in India. So there's land jihad. So if any Muslim owns land, then that becomes land jihad. There's love jihad, where if a Muslim falls in love with someone outside the community, then that's love jihad. If a Muslim happens to be in entertainment, then that's entertainment jihad. There's media jihad now. So there are all these, it's, it's become a bit of a joke, but it's also not a joke, you know. This, in all earnestness and seriousness, this chart was shown on national television. And really, I mean, I don't know how it can be allowed, but the broadcasting authority did nothing about it. Then finally, uh, individual citizens filed cases for hate speech, etc. And, and the legal process will do what it will do. I don't know what it will do. But the term love jihad has been weaponized consistently. There is most definitely this feeling amongst a lot of Indians now that they have the right to just step up to another citizen and tell them who to love or who not to love. And that if they don't obey, then they have a right to punish them outside of law. Can I finish with two questions about the theme of your book, which is the complicated meaning of home in contemporary India? For all of, It's a complicated word for all of us, but you bring out some of the really deep complexities. As you said there, you, you were talking about young couples who feel that they have to, I think I'm quoting you here, in what you just said, go home because they have no home, if you know what mm-hmm. I mean. There's nowhere where they can make a life for themselves. Mm-hmm. So they're forced back to the, the family home. Of course, there's a huge difference here for those people who do get married between men and women because invariably for women, when you get married, you acquire a new home and mm-hmm. you move. It's much, much more likely that the woman will move than the man so how does that complicate things on top of everything else the different meanings of home for people who do get married I think for women it is very complicated I don't know what the statistics are like in the west but in India for instance 98% of women move when they get married and usually when they get married it is overwhelmingly still an arranged marriage and you would move in not only with your husband but with your husband's family not knowing them at all and the problem also is that divorce is still frowned upon quite significantly marriages are very expensive your parents wipe out their life savings trying to get you married there is a lot of resistance to you just upping and leaving and coming back to your parental home because then what's going to happen to you? Then who's going to, quote unquote, look after you? Some of it ties into things that I don't necessarily mention in the book, but I think, you know, the women's work not being paid for. If you're not paid throughout your life, then obviously you're never going to have your own home. 
a home that you own, a home that you have control over, a home is also a place from which you have the right to dispel other people and from which other people do not have the right to dispel you. So uh, for women, it becomes very complicated if they do not own their own property because they're always at the mercy of either their fathers or their brothers or their husbands. I think, you know, with domestic violence, this is another problem that women have nowhere to go. That is why they, they put up with it for very long lengths of time. It's only when it crosses all bounds of, of you know, bearability that will they take that step of actually leaving. So finally, we are living through a period where I mean, different phrases are used to describe what's going on, but the commonest is that we're under stay-at-home orders. That's a phrase that's often used, that the lockdown has locked us down in our homes. So you've just described a world, the world of modern India, where home is so complicated. It is still a nation with massive internal migration, complicated identities, people who will have very different ideas of what counts as home. And yet all of us everywhere, not everywhere in the world, but in many places in the world have been told in recent weeks and months that we have to decide what home is because that's where you've got to be. So couples have had to decide, do they want to share a home or not? People have had to decide, can they bear to move back in with their parents or not when they have that choice? In India, has it, this forcing of people to decide where home is, has it complicated things? Has it clarified things? Do people, do you think people are going to think differently about what counts as home when this is over than they did before it started? They will and they should. I think in India, the way the pandemic has played out is that it's turned very quickly into a humanitarian crisis. And I, this is not my choice of words. Journalists, commentators everywhere are using the word that it is a humanitarian crisis. The thing is, I mean, India is, despite everything, a poor country. We like to think of ourselves as a developing country. But the fact is that so many, like 70% of this country is like borderline hungry or actually actively hungry. They may or may not have houses, pakka houses, you know, with solid shelters, but they certainly, a lot of them migrate uh, anywhere between 40 and 50% migrate seasonally where they'll go somewhere for work and then they'll come back at the end of the year or the end of six months to home base but they have to go or they will starve or their families will starve what's happened here is that the lockdown was announced very suddenly in india particularly like overnight suddenly and transport was shut down at once so all the people mostly poor people mostly people who have no stable shelter in big cities people who work in construction and in the food business and delivery businesses all the businesses that are now shut down and mostly in the informal sector. 90% of India, over 90% works in the informal sector. They don't have written contracts or the employment is very fragile. Like maybe, you know, you're out of work for 15 days and then you're suddenly just out of work. Employers have suddenly disappeared and not answering calls. There is no money for food. What are people going to do? So they're starving. And now civil society has stepped up, as in lots of my friends and lots of people who are activists, teachers, journalists have kind of just taken it upon themselves to collect money, to find food and go feed people. And states are trying to do that as well. But the thing is that 
50 days, more than 50 days, where you're dependent on somebody's charity for food. This has happened, really shaken up a lot of people. You're reading reports where a lot of people, they're going back to their states, they're fighting to go back, and the states are fighting to not have them come in, at least not without testing and quarantine and that kind of thing. So their sense of home must really be shaken. I can't imagine what it would be like to kind of want to go back, to try and go back hundreds of kilometers on foot, carrying just a bag, sometimes carrying your children, walking all that distance without food, without water, with a lockdown in progress, so people can't even step out of their houses and see you and help you as they would have in other times. And then you get home and then the police tells you, no, you can't come here. And then you have to argue and plead and beg. And once you do make it back home, lots of people are just saying, we're never leaving again. They may have to. Two years later, they may still have to. But for now, their feeling is that we never want to leave our village again because lots of people are also saying, if I die, I want to die at home. And lots of people are also feeling like they really don't know how to think of home anymore. I read one report where migrants from one state were not allowed to come back to their home states. And then one person, I'm quoting here, said, is this even our country? You know, that are we not citizens of this country? But then I also think, what was the word they used in their language? Uh, do they mean by country their village? Do they mean their state? Do they mean the nation as a whole? What is your conception then of home if you're having to plead and beg and if you're being beaten up for trying to go somewhere that you think you belong and where the state acknowledges you belong and yet you are treated as if, as if you were somehow an intruder? I think it really will change some things. I hope it will change many things. Annie's book, Bread, Cactus, Cement, is being published on the 28th of May, so that's next week. One of the great things about the Nine Dots Prize is that the book is available for free to anyone who wants to download it. It's published by Cambridge University Press, so to get it, all you'll need to do is go to the CUP website, and it'll be there. Just click and download. We will tweet the link. We will make it available. It's definitely worth reading. It's a beautiful book. Regular listeners might remember that we also featured the winner of the inaugural Nine Dots Prize, James Williams, and his book about Google, digital technology, and the attention economy. We'll tweet the links to those episodes too. Next week, in our regular slot, Helen and I will be back trying to make sense of the state of the world. Do please join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.